Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that believe and lives that obey. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, everyone loves a book that ends well. Uh, I don't know what your favourite book ending is. I don't know if you have a favourite book ending or not. Maybe that's just me. But uh, a book that ends well is is a great book because so often the ending of a book tells you so much about the book itself. Uh, A book that ends well gives you a snapshot sometimes uh, of what has happened. In one sentence, it gives you a vision of what's happened in the whole book. So Tolkien ends uh, Lord of the Rings with Sam back in Hobbiton uh, with the words, he drew a deep breath. Well, I'm back, he said. I don't know if you'd say that Tolkien ended Lord of the Rings well. He kind of drew it out for a little bit too long, if you ask me. Maybe two or three hundred pages too long. But uh, I've just lost a whole, I've just lost half an audience. But... uh, But it gives you that sense, doesn't it, of that great journey that they've been on. And finally, they're back. Or Charles Dickens, uh, in A Tale of Two Cities, the last chapter of the book is, The Footsteps Die Out Forever. And the scene is the guillotine in revolutionary France. And a young man is going to his death in the place of another. And we hear his speech, it's a great speech, but the last line of that speech is, it's a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It's a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. How a book ends tells us so much much about the book itself. And the same is true, I think, for the book of Matthew. How Matthew ends gives us this snapshot of what the whole book has been about. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. Uh, He's been crucified, raised from the dead. He meets his disciples on this mountaintop. What will he say? What's the most important thing that he will say? What words will he leave ringing in our ears? What does Matthew want us to remember about the ministry of Jesus? What's the climax? What's the the punchline? Well, Jesus leaves us with this command that Marty read for us before, this command to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. I suspect that most of us uh, had hoped that Jesus might have said something like, your sins are forgiven. Congratulations. Congratulations. 
which is true, but it's significant, I think, that that's not where Matthew ends the gospel. Matthew ends with these words of Jesus, with this task. The central command that Jesus gives to his disciples, to those 11 disciples gathered on that mountaintop, uh, verse 19 is, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Notice, first of all, what the command isn't. The command is not a command, go and save people. The aim is not merely to rescue people from hell. That's clearly part of their task. But the chief aim is to make disciples. The chief aim is to make people who follow and love Jesus. So the command flows out of what Jesus has just said, his statement that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is not just a lifesaver, he's a king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and the end result of that is that we should follow and trust him and that other people should follow and trust him as well. Jesus is a king, yes, a rescuing king who defeats our enemies, sin and death, a king who leads us in righteousness, but he's still a king, he's still a king to be obeyed and trusted. And the task of his disciples is not only to make disciples who trust Jesus to rescue them, but people who obey Jesus as well. What Jesus means by making disciples, he explains further using those words baptising and teaching. So those two words capture, if you like, part of what it means to make a disciple. First of all, it involves baptising people. Baptism is a symbolic way of bringing a person into God's community, into the community of people gathered around the Son, empowered by the Spirit for the glory of the Father. Its purpose is not uh, merely for the individual. Baptism isn't just for an individual, but it's actually a proclamation of the gospel to the whole community. The proclamation that we were born in sin, but by the sovereign power of God, we can share in the death of Jesus, which brings forgiveness, and the death of Jesus, which opens up the way for us to be cleansed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's crucial to understand what the meaning of baptism is, what baptism proclaims, because it means that our obedience to Jesus isn't grounded in our hard work, but it's grounded in the gift of God, anchored in the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we make disciples, we make disciples first of all by telling them to trust in the accomplished work of Christ, in his death and his resurrection, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're to make disciples, baptising them into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But second of all, we're to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now the whole of Matthew so far has unpacked what it means to obey and to follow Jesus. The whole of Matthew is about discipleship. It's about what it means to be a disciple. You might think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is explaining what it is to follow him. And on and on it goes through the whole of the gospel. There's no sphere of life which is left untouched 
by Jesus' authority. There's no command of Jesus which can kind of be left out or disregarded. What it means to be a disciple is to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. So what does it mean to be a disciple? It means, first of all, to identify with the death of Jesus Christ and the cleansing which comes through the Holy Spirit. But second, it means to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. So if you like, a person is brought into the community of God, gathered around Jesus by, through baptism, and within that community of people gathered around Jesus, there's this ongoing teaching and disciple-making so that people would grow in maturity and obedience to Christ. Now, it's important, I think, for us to understand, for us to remember always that making disciples involves both aspects, baptising and teaching. It's important for us to remember that, I think, because uh, if we don't remember that, we'll forget that making disciples is a long-term process. Making disciples isn't just about kind of kind of tipping people into the kingdom of God and then just leaving them on their own. It's not as though you know, making disciples, you can maybe spend a year with someone, they become a Christian, and then it's over, and you can kind of let them go off on their own. No, making disciples is a long-term process. It's a long-term project. It might take you 30 years to take someone from being an unbeliever to mature in the faith. Well, it takes God 30, 50, 60, 70 years to take us from an unbeliever to a mature Christian. So why would we expect that it would take any shorter time for us to train and make disciples ourselves? No, making disciples is a very long, drawn-out process. Just think of, uh, of our children. Our children are born into the community of people gathered around Jesus. And because they're part of that community, because they're part of our community, we want to train them to follow Christ. That's a very time-consuming and very long process. And it doesn't just take 18 years or 20 years or however long, however long it is that they're in the home. It goes on forever after that, doesn't it? My poor parents are always on the phone to me. Well, I'm always on the phone to them. And every time we speak, they're training me to be a mature Christian. They don't sit down and read the Bible with me. But they're always saying what it means to be a mature Christian in this or that situation. It's a mistake, I think, for us to think that our chief goal with our, with our children is kind of to bring them to a, a moment of crisis. A moment of crisis where they suddenly say, well, I'm following Jesus now and I wasn't, I wasn't yesterday. That may happen. But in many cases, we challenge them and show them every day of their lives what it means to follow Jesus. Not just one in the mo- sort of one grand moment, but in the minute details of life, we ought to be training them, showing them what it means to say no to sin and say yes to following and trusting Christ. To follow Christ with, with this $10 
that you've got for your birthday? What will that look like to subject that birthday present to Christ? To trust in Jesus by confessing that sin, for, you know, for hitting your sister or for lying about what your brother did? To show them what it means to submit that to Christ, to confess that sin and to trust that God forgives us through Jesus' death. We do those things every day and those things by the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace form faith. Or they become the seedbed for the rejection of Jesus Christ. The point is, though, that our task is not a sudden moment of crisis necessarily, but a slow training in what it looks like to trust Jesus in the details of life. And to be honest, seeing a child follow Jesus in the small things is actually better evidence of genuine faith than seeing them have some profound emotional experience. It's a slow process, but that's what it means to be a disciple-making disciple. I think it's a great exercise to think about all the people who God has used to train us in our faith. You might think of your parents. Maybe your parents had a significant impact in your life and they taught you so much about what you know about Christianity. Maybe it was an older Christian who taught you to die well. I always think of my grandfather, I probably told it before, who taught me what it is to die well. Died for 10 years. And I think of all the other Christians I've known who have died well. Think of the suffering Christians who taught you to patiently endure. The prayer meetings full of Christians who taught you how to pray. The growth groups who taught you how to read the Bible and taught you how to shape your life by it. The enthusiastic new Christians who taught you again to sacrifice everything after you become so worldly. The teacher whose humility and patience taught you what it means to be Christ-like. I think it's a great exercise, something I did this week, is to think about all the people whom God has used to train us to maturity in our faith, to take out a piece of paper and to write them down and to spend time thanking God for every one of them and then to spend time praying that just as God's used them to train you, that God would use you to train other people in the faith as well. It's so helpful, I think, to remember that the command is to make disciples because making disciples is a long-term project. But it's also helpful to remember that the goal is to make disciples because I suspect it might be that at some stages of our life we find ourselves doing one part of that making disciple process more than at other times. So it may be that at certain stages of our life we find ourselves doing more evangelistic work Then at other times, Uh, typically when people go to university, 
Uh, university is a great time for sharing the gospel with people because university is a place of ideas. And so you could share the gospel with a new person every day. I went to Sydney University, I think it's something like 30,000 people or something like that go to Sydney, Sydney University, some ridiculous number. You could speak to a new person every day and never get, get through them all. So there may be some times of our lives when we'll be more heavily engaged in evangelism than at other times. And there may be certain times of our life when we'll be engaged more heavily in bringing people to maturity. Perhaps the years that our children are at their youngest is a time when we'll be most focused on bringing them to maturity in faith. But it's important to remember, I think, that the key command is not to make new disciples, nor only to train old disciples. The key command is to make disciples. And I suspect that if we're focused on doing that, if we're doing one of them, I suspect that sooner or later we'll find ourselves that we're doing the other as well because we're focused on ministry and we're thinking about how we can make disciples and bring people to maturity in Christ. So the key command that Jesus gives to us then uh, in this, these last words in Matthew's Gospel is make disciples, be disciple-making disciples who lead people to Jesus and who train them up to maturity in Christ. Well, that's the most important thing that Jesus has to tell us after his resurrection. But bound up with that command as well, you might have noticed, is Jesus' instruction to go. So Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them uh, and teaching them. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you've ever heard it before, but uh, some people have said that Jesus' command is not go, but rather what Jesus means is as you go, that is, as you go about your life, uh, as you go along, make disciples. Unfortunately, that's uh, unlikely, uh, grammatically. It's true that go is not kind of the key command. Go is not the the primary command that Jesus is giving. The key command is make disciples. Uh, And the key command, in fact, is to make disciples of all nations. It seems much more likely that what Jesus means is make disciples of all nations. And insofar as that requires going, which going, which if you want to make disciples of all nations does require going, then go. As, require, as, make, as making disciples of all nations requires going, go. Go and do it. The mission that Jesus gives us is a worldwide mission. And so if we need to go to Kamchatka to make disciples in Kamchatka, then we should go to Kamchatka. Jesus' mission is a worldwide mission. All nations, all peoples. But having said that, Jesus' mission is also a local mission. Making disciples of all nations includes making disciples in our own nation. And that in and of itself sometimes involves a kind of going. So it might mean moving to another suburb with the express purpose of having opportunities to make disciples. It might mean moving to another state in order to make disciples more effectively. It might just mean joining the Lawn Bowls Club in order to make disciples at the Lawn Bowls Club. The mission to make disciples is both a worldwide mission and it's a local mission. I suspect that's 
probably pretty obvious to most of us. I think the, the harder and the more pressing question, though, often is, who goes and who stays? I think we all can see, well, yes, it's worldwide and it's local, but the, but the difficult question is, who goes and who stays? Should I go or should I stay? Clearly not every single Christian can go to every other nation, otherwise every, kind of everyone will be passing each other in the skies. The command, in some sense, that Jesus gives is a shared responsibility for all Christians. The church, to the church, go and make disciples of all nations. So we might not each individual, one of us, go to the far reaches of the earth, but we should all have a vested interest in mission and in disciples being made in the far reaches of the earth. John Piper has said, and I think it's a good point, that we should all be either radical goers or radical senders. We should all either be radically going somewhere to another country, to some far-off place, or we should all be radically, uh, you know, kind of shrinking our domestic lives so that we can support people uh, in other countries. I think, uh, I think it's John Piper as well who uh, I heard him say at another time, that our lives should be, if you like, on a war footing. I love that idea of our lives being what we're in at the moment is a kind of a, it's like living through a war. That is, one of my favourite shows is Foil's War. That's really daggy, I know, but it's, it's one of those BBC um, detective shows. And it's set in the Second World War. I might have said this before, but I love it. There's an episode where someone gets an onion and they're over the moon because they have an onion. And you go, what's with that? Because no one had that. You know, no one had, had things because all the money, all the resources were going into fighting a war. All the food was going to the troops, to the soldiers. You know, women gave up their jobs and they were, they were employed. They were shipped out of cities uh, into the countryside to work on farms. They'd never, they'd never worked on a farm a day in their lives. And they were shipped out of the city into the countries to work on farms so that they could provide enough food for the British population uh, because of the, all the ships were being sunk, of course, uh, in the Atlantic, uh, and to provide enough food for the, for the troops. Uh, you know, metal uh, and things like that. Were, you know, there's, a, there's another episode. Kids are sent around the streets to collect scrap metal so that they can build fighter planes and tanks. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Every single person's life in wartime Britain was focused on the goal, the mission of defeating the Nazi aggression. And what John Piper is saying is when he says we should live on a wartime footing, he's saying that every single person in the church their life should be engaged, whether it's on a farm, you know, providing food for the troops, or whether it's gathering scrap metal. Every single person in the church should be geared toward that single mission of making disciples of all nations. And often that means going without things that we could easily have. 
but we do it because this isn't peacetime. This is still a war. Not a war fought with swords and shields, but a war fought with the truth of the gospel. I think one of the blessings that God has given this church, and I think a great encouragement to us, is that this church is a sending church. It's one of the first things that struck me when I came here. I'm so encouraged to think of Will uh, in India, think of Graham and Linda in South Sudan, or Susan Davies at the moment in Niger. We heard from Quentin and Ashley this morning about their hopes to go into the Middle East. Add to that the uh, other missionaries that we've kind of been able to partner with through meeting people at Worldview over the years. I think it's a great blessing that we can support so many people in the mission field. But that said, it's also easy to become a sender and to never ask the question, should I go? How do you know whether you should stay or go? Unfortunately, there's no easy answer to that question. But a good place to start, I think, is by asking God, by praying, and asking God what he wants you to do. I think most of us are so afraid of what the outcome of that prayer might be that we never pray it. I dare not pray... God, do you want me to go overseas into mission? I dare not pray that because the answer might be yes. And I don't want that to be the case. But, you know, there's something so remarkably amazing about getting to that point where you can say, well, if that's what I have to give up, if I have to give up all this, well, I'll just put, my, I'll just put myself in the hands of God. And I'm better being in Africa doing what God wants than being here in Australia with coffee and chocolate and whatever else you can set your heart on. Better having all that, you know, it's no point having all that and disregarding God. Most of us, I think, are content to stay where we are and frightened of what it might mean to hand our lives over to God. Of course, radical going might, might mean leaving Australia. It might mean going into the mission field. It might also mean giving up a good career. Uh, it might mean giving up stability and comfort to go into pastoral ministry or uh, to do rural mission work it's sort of, uh, in Aboriginal communities or farming communities. I think of a guy like Chris Stafferton. Some of you will know Chris Stafferton. He works up in ministry on the northwest coast. He gave up a good... Uh, stable career in engineering to go into a pretty tumultuous ministry career. But he's working away in the north, on the northwest coast making disciples. I think of a good friend of mine who's pastoring in a little church in rural Victoria. Uh, he's a long way from friends and family. Uh, you know, you know, one of the blessings of living in Launceston, I've discovered, is that so many people live with their family and they get to, you know, once a week go and, and have lunch 
with family, and that's a great blessing. But my friend ministering in rural Victoria is maybe 10 hours by car and flight from his family, and probably about four hours from his wife's family. Uh, He'd been a civil construction worker, and he went to Bible college to prove to himself that he wasn't cut out for ministry. And now he's plugging away uh, with his wife and his young family, making disciples. Well, you might know other people as well who've given up lots of things to take up Jesus' mission to make disciples of all nations. God might not be calling you to that kind of going. He might not be calling you to go anywhere. That's okay. If God's not calling you to do that, that's okay. But many people never even ask if God might be calling them to that. And if we never ask, we'll never go. Wherever we are, Jesus wants us to be disciple-making disciples, leading people to faith and training people up to maturity in Christ. Well, that's a tough, uh, that's a tough ask. The Great Commission, I think, when we see it for all it is, is, is overwhelming. And in one sense, we're right to find it overwhelming because that means that we've grasped the enormity of what God is calling us to do. But in another sense, we're wrong to find it overwhelming because that means we've forgotten that the mission is not ours but God's. And so in this, these final words that Jesus gives us, they're sandwiched between these two great encouragements that I want to finish with. Jesus, in, uh, first of all, in verse 18 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. The command to go and to make disciples is grounded in Jesus' authority. What a position we might face then is not beyond Jesus' power to conquer. What difficulties we might face are not beyond Jesus' power to overcome. What hardness of heart we might run up against is not beyond Jesus' power to soften. What unintended consequences, unforeseen consequences we might encounter is not beyond Jesus' power to foresee. Jesus is in charge of our mission. More than ever, I think, we need to view reality through God's eyes rather than our own. You see, when we try and when we fail, we stop altogether. But Jesus says that actually, even when that happens, everything is going according to his plan because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. It might not be going according to our plan, but it is going according to Jesus' plan. The work that we do is under Jesus' sovereign care. If it succeeds, it succeeds because he makes it succeed. And even where it fails, it fails, uh, that is, within his divine plan. The work that we do is not empowered by our cleverness or our ingenuity, and it doesn't fail because of our lack of cleverness or our lack of ingenuity. Our work is empowered by Christ to achieve precisely what he intends it to achieve. All authority in heaven and on earth 
belongs to him. That's the first great encouragement. The second great encouragement comes in verse 20, right at the very end, where Jesus says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Either encouragement without the other is an empty platitude. So Jesus' presence, sorry, without his power isn't very encouraging. Jesus' presence without his power isn't very encouraging. It would be like me saying that I'll be with you. Imagine that. It's like, you know, don't worry, I'll be with you. You know, it's like that, what people say uh, nowadays. They say, I'll be thinking of you. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that will really help, you know, when my, when my life is, is falling apart. When the surgeon's cutting off my leg, it's, it will be such an encouragement to know that you're thinking of me. Uh, but Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't saying, oh, don't worry, I'll be thinking of you. Jesus is saying, I'll be with you. And that's an encouragement because he's powerful and his presence is a powerful presence. Likewise, Jesus' power without his personal, without his personal presence is useless as well. It's like knowing that Barack Obama is powerful. Interesting, but not particularly useful. Jesus says he is both powerful, all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is personally present with us. I am with you always to the very end of the age. When you're making disciples, whether you're making disciples at school or in your house or in your workplace or on the other side of the world, Jesus' authority and power are with you. When you're meeting with your friends to read the Bible and to pray, Jesus is there with all his authority and power. When you're trudging along to growth group, even in the middle of winter, when it's five degrees outside and you'd rather be at home, even then, Jesus is there with all his power and authority. When you're handing out tracts in the street and everyone is saying no, Jesus is there with all his power and authority. When you're bumbling your way through an explanation of the gospel with that person that you've known for five years and you've been waiting for five years for an opportunity to speak to them and it finally comes and you're making a meal of it, Jesus is there with all his power and authority. For Graham and Linda and Jasmine and Caleb and Josiah in a country ravaged by war, for Susan Davies in Niger, for Will in India, for Quentin and Ashley in the future in one of the most difficult regions in the world, Jesus will be there with them as much as he is here with us. His power in your lounge room and with your child or with your friend or with your spouse, Jesus' power is as real and magnificent with you as his power with missionaries in the far corners of the globe. I love it when Jesus says in John's Gospel that through the Spirit, he and the Father will come and make their home with us. You could be in solitary confinement and still have three of the best flatmates in the world. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The powerful resurrected Jesus is with us if we put our trust in him and he's with us, Matthew says, so that we can make disciples of all nations, baptising them into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and has been raised to life again. And thank you that his resurrection testifies to his authority and power. And his death testifies to his love for us. And Lord, uh, if we're honest, we'll admit that the Great Commission is a daunting task to make disciples of all nations. And Lord, if we're honest, sometimes we'll admit that we resent the task because we'd rather just get on with living and building our own little kingdoms rather than building yours. But Lord, we want to confess that to you and acknowledge our hardness of heart and plead that you would so stir us that we would love Christ so much that we would want with all our hearts for people to serve him and to know him and that we would love the nations so much that we would want them to know you. Lord, we thank you so much for the wonderful example of those that we know who have given up so much to fulfil this great commission. And Lord, we ask that their sacrifice would be an encouragement to us. Lord, we thank you for all those who have worked in our lives to make us faithful disciples, by your grace. Lord, we thank you for them and we ask that you would enable us to be effective and useful in making disciples of others as well. Lord, we ask that you would bring us as a church, as a community of people gathered around Jesus, that you would bring us to maturity in Christ for his sake. Amen.